That was bassist and NEA jazz master Ron Carter playing Receipt, Please. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Ron Carter is one of the most influential and prolific bassists in jazz, as well as one of the first jazz cellists. To list all the accomplishments of his 45-year career would require much more time than I have. So here are some highlights. He's performed with many jazz legends, including Chico Hamilton, Randy Weston, Dexter Gordon, Thelonious Monk, and Art Farmer. He was a member of Miles Davis's second great quintet that included Wayne Shorter, Tony Williams, and Herbie Hancock. He is one of the outstanding studio musicians, with well over 2,000 albums to his credit. He's a composer. In fact, he wrote the tune we just heard, Receipt, Please. And he scored and arranged music for many films. He's won a Grammy Award, received two honorary doctorates, and in 1998 was named an NEA Jazz Master. Ron Carter was born in Michigan in 1937 and grew up in Detroit, where he played classical music. He was classically trained in both cello and bass, graduating from the Eastman School in Rochester and getting a master's degree at the Manhattan School of Music. I recently spoke to Ron Carter in his New York City apartment. You'll hear the traffic. I began our conversation by asking him why, if he was classically trained, did he begin to play jazz? Well, I was playing jazz all along to stay in school. On my summer vacations, I would go back to Detroit and I would either work during the day as a parks and recreation personnel or uh, at, at an amusement park. But at night, I was playing these little gigs for the sororities and fraternities to have these weekend parties in Detroit. What about when you were getting your master's degree at the Manhattan School of Music? Did you play jazz during that time, too? A couple of things. One, I enrolled in school a semester late because I had joined Chico Hamilton's quintet for uh, six months. So I didn't start my scholarship that had won until six months, a semester later. But when I got to school, a, a, lot of, a lot of jazz players were playing in the orchestra. They were already taking classes. Donna Bird was there. Larry Willis was there. Hugh Masekela was there. Lyle Atkinson was there. Uh, the conductor had had a stroke, so he had an assistant called as Charlie Perkinson was there. So there were people there who were already involved in playing jazz as they were studying classical harmony or keyboard or whatever they're studying at the Manhattan School of Music. Um, so I was already in a different kind of environment that encouraged you to play whatever you could play. Do you remember your first jazz gig in New York? Uh, with Chico Hamilton at Birdland. I came to New York because Chico had, was, had seen me in Rochester the summer or the fall of 58. And at the time, the cello player, Nat Gershman, was going to leave the band and go back to California. And Chico was looking for a cello player. So I went to the theater where they were working, and I played the book. And he said, OK, when you come to New York, if I'm in town, look me up. So I was expecting to come to New York and work with Chico's band as a cello player. Well, when I got here, the cello player decided to stay. The bass player decided he wanted to go back to Seattle. So I ended up playing bass in that band for six months. How was it playing with Chico Hamilton? My first experience on the road with anyone was with him, and I couldn't have thought of a better person 
to show me how to function uh, on the road, where to eat, how to eat, how to rest, paying taxes, claiming your income. So it was an educational event for me all the way around. You also, pretty early on, I think it was in 1960, you played with Youssef Latif. Yeah, he's my friend from Detroit. Again, in Detroit, I wasn't on the jazz scene at all. I wasn't going to clubs. I wasn't hanging out with the guys. I wasn't part of any storefront kind of jazz school. I was just trying to find out how this music worked. Because they don't hang out. But I did go by to hear them play a certain occasional concerts in the parks. And um, Yusuf was playing uh, music using all the percussion that guys use today. So he was 40 years ahead of his time. So I got a chance to listen to him play, listen to his interpretation of uh, melodies, listen to a great sound. So I was very pleased to have a chance when he called me to make a date with him for Atlantic Records in the early 60s. Your first record was Stompin' at the Savoy, out of the thousands that you've made? Uh, okay, that's pretty far back, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm just wondering, the difference between performing live and performing in a studio for recording? Well, I think the difference is really, really clear. When you're playing live, theoretically, the notes are gone. You never hear them in that order again, and either than anybody else. In the studio, it's, it's a log of your presence. It's, it's an auditory carbon copy of what you hear that someone else shares with you. It's a historical marker that on this day, on this date, on this song, at this speed, at this tempo, in this key, with these players, you try out these notes. And that's what that is. When you're playing live, you're not so concerned with preservation of an idea. It's gone. Try again tomorrow night. How has the bass changed during the 40 years you've been playing? Well, it's probably made the most drastic change of any instrument. I think uh, several things have happened. One, uh, the bass is now uh, has a pickup, which is a enclosed microphone on the bass. So the bass, first of all, is a lot more present. Everybody can hear it. So you can no longer hide behind the loud drum sounds or the loud piano chords. He's as present sonically as everybody else is. And I think because he is now more, he's more easily heard, it's forced the bass player to be more cautious about building a line, to understand harmony more thoroughly. Uh, to be able to experiment with different kinds of strings that make the bass sound better, certainly differently than the set that he now has. And with the audiophiles, uh, everybody has what the bass player is playing now. And I think all these factors have made the bass players uh, think differently and play differently on the bass than they did 40 years ago when they were hardly heard, no matter how hard they played. Right, it was hard to get past the 10th row. Yeah. You were with the Miles Davis Quintet for five years? 63, 68. You were still pretty young at that point. We were all kind of young chickens at that time. <laughs> so we were kind of all a pretty young band. And one of the great bands. Well, that's what they say. Yes. <laughs> what was it like being part of that? Well, I'm not sure any of us thought we were a part of anything. I think we enjoyed going to work every night playing with our friends. That We were going into a laboratory every night. And Miles would have these chemicals spread out along the wall or on the desk. And it was our job, Herbie, Tony, and myself, to arrange these chemicals so something happened with them that didn't happen the night before and might not happen again tomorrow. Did Miles Davis have an impact on you? All leaders have impact on me. What did you learn from him? 
Every night's a great chance to play great music with some wonderful players. Every night. Any night. Take advantage of it. You've been a player in a lot of different groups, but you've also been a leader. What's the difference? What do you have to bring to the table when you're leading the group? You have to let the band know, I think, if you're a leader, that you are, in fact, the leader. That means you make decisions that may not be popular with everybody, but they're the decisions the leaders have to make. You decide who's in the band. You decide how much they get paid. You decide the library. You decide the solo order. You decide what kind of arrangements you're going to play. You decide what key they're going to be in. As a side man, you just go to work and they do it, and, and the guy who tells someone else these things, he's not telling them to me. So it's, it's, it's different in that the line of responsibility is clearly marked. And I think the dates where the leader is clearly in charge, they're probably the more successful dates than when they go in and kind of let it fly and see what happens. You ended up deciding that you were tired of being on the road in 1968. Yeah, I, I had, I'd been out for a while. Miles had bought this four or five week ventures. And when Miles wasn't working, I was working with other people. I'd go to Europe with Friedrich Gulda for three or four weeks. I, I was kind of always on the, on the go, so when I felt that I had enough of that kind of frequent tour travel, I told Miles I had enough. I wanted to stay home for a while. And you did a lot of studio work. The studio was big at the time, 60, 63, 65, 75. There was a lot of commercial work going on. There were, there was a, a Studio bands, studio orchestras, studio jazz bands. There were a lot of recordings being done on the, from the jazz point of view. The Japanese people come and record four or five records a week. Uh, there were at least 12 jazz labels that were actively recording jazz week in and week out, so it was a good time to be in New York. Mm, great time to be in New York. Yeah. Is there anyone you didn't work with? Uh, as far as recordings are concerned? Yeah. Well, I, I missed John Coltrane because he was working at the same time Miles was. So I didn't get a chance to play with him, although I got a chance to hear him a couple of times. And uh, I, I'm a Jamal's on my list to add to people who I wish I would play with and get him off my list. If you had to pick somebody you wished you had worked with but didn't, would it be John Coltrane? Well, I think I would like to talk to John about music and, and just find out how he views the role of the bass in his band. I like to think that uh, as a bass player, I could contribute to his point of view musically. And I don't think that he had had that kind of input often in his playing career. I mean, I want to know, do you listen to the bass player? And if he plays this kind of note, are you going to respond to that? That's a reasonable question for me. And if I thought that it was a role I didn't want to fulfill or was uncomfortable, uncomfortable fulfilling, I probably would say no just because I want to be comfortable that my point of view is something I can take the heat for, good or bad. One of the other ways the bass has changed, get back to your other question, is that because it's now as loud as everybody else, which is a terrible way to say it, it's as loud as everybody else, the bass players are starting to ask the band leader, wait a minute, man, I played this set of notes, I played these changes, how come you didn't respond to that? You went to this Montuna all night? Well, I can't do that. I hear other notes. Listen to my notes and see if they help. They're getting to that point of view now, and, and I think that that's good for music, good for bass, mu- good for bass players, and it's good for the history, of the history of the instrument. When you played with Miles, he responded to you. He trusted that I would find the right notes, and I found some good ones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Indeed you did. 
3,000 albums? Is that possible? It's probably close to 25. You know, every but time, still, that's it, big. It, yeah, well, I was busy. You know, I mean, at the time, there were like 10 to 12 labels in New York. In the States, they were recording records right and left because they saw I was, a, first of all, a moneymaker. And secondly, there was a lot of a large population clamoring for this music. It was on the radio, it was on television shows. Steve Allen had jazz guys on this on this program all the time. I mean, it was really an important music, and the companies took advantage of that kind of presence and need for an audience to make records. So it was very easy to be on that many records at that time because I was a pretty good player, and, and I was kind of in demand. And, and uh, as I wasn't traveling, I was home available to make those records, you know. But no, it's, it's not 3,000. I, I wish. That means I would have gotten, gotten John Coltrane, among other things, you know. Closer to 2000, I've got 2006, something like that. You know. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. You have worked with many, many people. It's impossible to list them all, but you've worked with Randy Weston, and you mm-hmm. also have recorded his music mm-hmm. on your own. Mm-hmm. Talk about his music. Well, he was the first musician I heard live who was playing out of the Duke Ellington and Thonius Monk School of Music. I mean, uh, his percussive touch was kind of like Monk. Uh, his harmony of his songs were kind of like Duke. Uh, he was very aware of African rhythms when he would comp and play melodies. Uh, and that influenced me to be aware of how important Duke Ellington was to the world of music in, in particular and to Randy Weston uh, specifically. How important is Duke Ellington to the world of music? Well, he's the first person who wrote charged for the personalities in his band, uh, in addition to writing some nice songs. Uh, He brought a level of elegance to big band writing that didn't exist before, I think. And, uh, of course, he was fortunate enough to pick great players to play his music. Cat Anderson, Harry Carney, uh, Jimmy Blanton, I can't forget his name. I mean, he made Duke Ellington think a whole different point of view of how to write a string bass player with the four or five saxophones. So Duke was the first person to understand musical personalities and what they could bring to arrangement with a part written specifically for what they do. You play the cello as well as the bass. And you play jazz cello, which is quite unusual. Can you talk about the difference between playing those two instruments? Well, just to go back a paragraph, the cello I played was tuned like a cello. Top string A, second string D the third string G and the fourth string C. And those bass players who are credited with playing cello were actually playing a a cello-sized bass tuned like a bass. So they were really not playing cello at all. And that's probably because you started playing cello. I mean, the cello was your first instrument. Yeah, I knew knew that was... Well, the difference, of course, is the size of the instrument and uh, the ability to a segment of notes without having to move too far up or down the neck of the instrument. Uh, it's a lot brighter sound, and it's not as big as a string bass sound. And uh, there's several avant-garde cellists who I've heard who really have found new things on the cello that had not occurred to me. They have new sounds. They plug into these uh, guitar-type devices and make the sound completely different things that just aren't of my imagination, you know. And they do it really well. I kind of always thought that if I work on a, getting a good sound and a sound that I don't mind being responsible for. I don't want some little green or orange box making it sound different, you know. I found that, that as a bass player, I can kind of maintain that personality. 
Uh, I think a cello would be a lot more complicated because I'm playing solos, and ensembles. I'm not playing all the time as a bass player in most bands would, be, would have to do. I don't know if this question will make sense, but what do you think that your background in classical music brought to your jazz playing? Uh, if it brought anything at all, it was how to practice. Uh, at, at a conservatory, the competition is really high. And it's always in your face. So when you have a lesson to prepare for a lesson, you have to figure out how can I concentrate given all my other activities. Uh, you, you have theory chorus, you have piano chorus, you have instrumental chorus, you have arranging, you have listening exams. I mean, there's a full plate. So I think the most important thing I got from my classical experience was how to make my practice times more valuable and more conducive to getting better. As a cellist, I had to prepare a lesson every week. And I had chores to do in my house. I was, I was taking out the garbage. I was at newspaper route. I mean, I had things to do other than play the cello. And because I was expected to have a lesson prepared and acceptably prepared, it taught me how I have to focus when I have short time to practice. I have make it a meaningful practice time. And conversely, you still perform classical music. You, you as often as I can. And you also record classical music. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that your years of playing jazz brings to your musicianship in classical music? I don't think so, other than perhaps the idea that, let me give an example. Okay. I recorded the Bach Brandenburg Number no. 3 with a string orchestra, and uh, I was playing the bass parts as I wanted to play them. They showed me two things. One, that the music of that era was built great for improvisation on someone's part. And two, given Bach's appearance on the scene, I can't help but believe that he would appreciate my efforts to make his music sound different. And I think that the classical players would sit down and seriously take into consideration studying the art of improvising. They would play all those pieces that they play much much differently. They play them slower, they would understand what the chords are, they aren't just notes that are a technical exercise. Uh, it would help their interpretation of a piece of music. Now I know the classical teachers are interested in propagandizing their view of their interpretation of the piece of music, and they won't let the student get out of the room until they play it just so as the professor, teacher, wants that view to be had. In playing classical, a classical library uh, and working as a jazz musician, I found that the more I understand the piece from a jazz person's improvisational attitude, uh, it makes the music have a whole other kind of life, which kind of distresses classical players because they don't want anyone to tamper with their view of how Debussy or how Bach or, or Haydn Ralph Vaughan Williams, they don't want that view tampered with. But I think a jazz player's contribution to music, among other things, is ability to read into music and translate it in the modern day's point of view. When you're playing classical music and when you're playing jazz, is the feeling that you have as a player, is it different? Is it similar? Well, it's different. When I'm playing a classical piece, I'm playing somebody else's ideas. 
and the history of classical music is you keep playing this person's point of view until you get tired of it. In the jazz performance, whoever the composer is, alive or dead, he's written this piece for people to experiment with. Maybe they want to change the form. Maybe they want to change the changes. Maybe they want to change the tempo. Maybe the key. But it's written with these kind of options in mind. So the feeling of playing the, playing the Beethoven Fifth is not the same as playing all blues. Mm -hmm. It can't be. Jazz players write their pieces based on somebody else interpreting it. I mean, they thrive on that. That's why it is what it is. You know, and, and uh, I've done some dates with some classical players who play jazz, but they're only able to get close enough because they understand the process. But I, I think that it will take a classical player some serious thinking and a real commitment to be able to play jazz violin like Ray Nance or Stuff Smith and then be able to go to Carnegie Hall and uh, play in the Brahms Trio or the Schubert Trial Quintet. I did that with Nigel Kennedy. Nigel Kennedy, the violinist. Great player. And we had a great time with making a record together, me and Jack DeJunette, an organ player he knew. But he spent the time to understand as near as we can all understand how jazz works. He didn't feel like a traitor to the classical world, you know. He didn't feel like he was going to turn the jazz world upside down. He just wanted to play this music. And I think that more classical players would have that attitude. They'd find much more fun playing their music, classical library, as they would playing Duke Ellington's songbook. Mm -hmm. we, got, we got the same notes. We yeah. just put them in different orders, you know. Teaching. You've spent... A long time. A long time teaching. You're a distinguished professor of music emeritus at City College. Mm -hmm. What did you try to bring to the classroom? I try to have them understand that if you're going to be in this profession and not a hobbyist, a weekender who works Friday at a local bar after working five days at your IBM job, you have to be willing to make some sacrifices. And that means practicing every day, no weekends off at grandma's house, you know, no, take no day off because it's Christmas. You have to be willing to understand that you got to play with an intention of getting better every day. If you have an assignment, you be prepared for the assignment like it's the best you could play it, but put the time in to get to that frame of mind. You may not get to be famous, however you define famous, but you'll certainly have fun playing this music. And if you're determined and dedicated, you'll get somewhere where someone will hear you who will maybe not make you famous, but make you go up to a level of musician and player that you want to be aspiring toward. I, I tell them this is, a, this is a job. We're really a serious people here. I take that to mean for you. When I give you an assignment, I don't want any stories about you worked all night. I already did that, man. Worked all night and all day and prepared a lesson that I felt was acceptable. You're not even close. So I try to make them, make them understand that this, this is to play this music a real serious and time-consuming event. I'm not asking you to expect to be poor. I'm asking you to learn to do it, learn skill. Study keyboard, study, study harmony, study arranging. Play as often as you can so you can understand how this music works in a different environment. But it's a real job and, and I'm happy to go to work every night. I'm so happy that you do. <laughs> Ron Carter, thank you very much. I really appreciate you giving me your time during this busy period.
Well, this is my first week off in a long time, and I'm happy to have something to talk about other than the B-flat 7. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That was NEA jazz master Ron Carter. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Receipt, Please, composed by Ron Carter and performed by Ron Carter and Jim Hall. Excerpts from Brandenburg Concerto No. 3, composed by Johann Sebastian Bach and performed by Ron Carter, from his album Brandenburg Concerto, used courtesy of EMI Music. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And you can also subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on the top of our podcast page. Next week, National Heritage Fellow and MacArthur Genius Award recipient Mary Jackson. To find out how Artworks and communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.